Welcome to the launch IMHCHBH podcast, everyone. That's a hashtag and a half. Um, I'm here with Professor Ed Bullmore. Um, and Ed, you're talking today about inflammation and depression. So I guess inflammation and mental illness is a topic that has gained lots of interest over recent years. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons is that we've got a much deeper understanding of what inflammation is. And it, you, you can see that inflammation's had an impact in understanding all sorts of different diseases, all sorts of different medical specialities. It's not just mental health. I mean, if I think back, I'm, I'm pushing 60. If I think back to what I was taught in medical school about inflammation and immunology, it was quite, you know, it was a player, of course, but it wasn't uh, everywhere. It, was, it, it had quite a restricted scope, if you will, inflammation in medicine. You know, it was rheumatoid arthritis, SLE, a few other so-called connective tissue disorders. But, you know, in the last 20 years in particular, it's clear that immunology inflammation is relevant to cancer, it's relevant to Alzheimer's disease, it's relevant to multiple sclerosis, it's relevant to atherosclerosis. Um, you know, it seems like the immune system is somehow or other involved in almost every aspect of our health. And I think it's quite natural that that should include mental health as well as physical health. And there's various papers that have come out over the last few years that have linked inflammation to different mental illnesses. Do you want to give yeah. us a bit of a kind of overview of that? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's very rapidly growing. Um, you know, I think one of the uh, angles that first attracted my attention was the story about psychosis and uh, antibodies, particularly so-called autoantibodies that attack the body's own proteins. Um, and, you know, we've known that autoantibodies are important for a number of different neurological diseases, but about four or five years ago it became clear that they were relevant also to psychosis, at least in some people with a first episode of psychosis. And actually that really came through to me pretty loud and clear because I had colleagues in Cambridge, Belinda Lennox and Peter Jones, were running a first episode psychosis clinic in Cambridge, and uh, for some reason, they thought you know, that they'd start measuring these antibodies in a few patients that were not responding very well to treatment, and they found high levels of antibodies, and they offered them treatment to clear the antibodies, and they reported that their psychotic symptoms improved. Now, that's not a you know, randomised clinical trial, but it was a very... To me, it had a big impact on me because you know, these were colleagues working in the same... NHS trust with me, they were seeing the same kind of patients that I was seeing, but they made that little extra leap of imagination to think, well, maybe, you know, not everybody's psychotic for the same reason, maybe there's some of these patients might have high levels of autoantibodies, and of course the big win, uh, as they demonstrated, at least in those few cases, was that if you could identify the people that had psychosis and autoantibodies, and you treated the antibodies, that turned out to be a pretty good treatment for psychosis. So that was that was one angle that really caught my attention. And then I think the story about depression and inflammation, you know, people have been thinking about that and writing about it for, well, it must be about, you know, 20, 30 years now. But I think over the last five to 10 years in particular, there's really been a sort of an inflection in terms of the amount of interest, the amount of activity in that area. And, you know, it's, you know, if you stop and think about it, actually depression and inflammation, we know, you know, very commonly go together. I mean, I would, I would venture to say every, every practitioner will have had a patient or a service user in front of them that has both symptoms of depression, like fatigue, 
difficulty in thinking clearly about the future, a sense of uh, low mood, difficulty in, in, in finding pleasure in life. Those symptoms are terribly common in people that have inflammatory disease, like rheumatoid arthritis, for example. Um, we've seen that. I think practitioners have seen that for many, many years. But what we're beginning to get to now is the question about causality. You know, could this association between inflammation and depression represent a causal link? Could inflammation actually be driving depression in some of those people? So I think it's, you know, it's popping up in a number of different places. There's a story about the immune system in autism, um, you know, in particular, you know, the r very complex, you know, immune uh, response to infection or to trauma of the mother when you have a, a pregnancy on board, you know, how does that, how does that immune reaction in the mother transmit? itself to the fetus and possibly put brain development on a different path that might lead to neurodevelopmental disorders like autism. You know, there are a lot of different uh, angles to this. So focusing for a second on inflammation and depression, mm -hmm. let's say there is a causal link yeah. and we, we get some evidence supporting that over the coming years. Where does that lead in terms of interventions to prevent or treat depression? Right. Well, the causality question is crucial for interventions, right? Because you don't want to be um, intervening against inflammation if it's just an innocent bystander, you know, it, but if you can be sure that it's causal, then it's a completely different story. Um, and I suppose one sort of optimistic view of how things might play out over the next several years is that we might move away from treating depression uh, as if it was, you know, uh, as if we were treating fever in the 19th century. You know, if, if I went to see a physician in the 19th century and I said, you know, I, my temperature's high and I'm, 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 I'm sweating and feeling flushed, they probably wouldn't look too hard for the cause. They'd probably just give me some herbal remedy that brought my temperature down a little bit. Uh, and the big breakthrough in treating fever was recognising that not everybody's got a fever for the same reason. And if you really want to do your patients a favour, you're going to treat the cause, not the symptom. So I hope that we might get to a similar thing with depression and, you know, in the future people will be not just offering treatments that are going to reduce the levels of symptoms but trying to find the cause. And in some patients, not all of them, that cause could be inflammation and then the interventions could be targeting uh, inflammation as a new way of uh, having an antidepressant effect. So you rock up to your GP and mm. rather than getting the choice that you currently get, what additional intervention do you get? Well, I think, first of all, you know, the GP or whoever it was, whatever practitioner, would, would have to do a little bit more investigation. You know, because at the moment, as you know, the diagnosis of depression, it's a symptom checklist, basically. Uh, no investigations are necessary. I think in the new world that I'm imagining, it would be a bit more like, you know, uh, an ordinary medical uh, consultation. You know, you'd, you'd talk about your symptoms, and then the doctor would think, well, what would the be the cause of that I'll do a few investigations to find out more and I think that would be a, personally I think that would be a step forward for mental health services if we just paused a little bit before treatment and tried to identify cause so that could be a blood test maybe it could be a brain scan you know the, what you might generally call biomarkers you know m things that you can measure um, in people as, as indicators of in inflammation. I think that's going to be crucial to the success of this whole strategy. So I think there'll be a bit of investigation. Let's say a blood test. Are you inflamed and depressed? In that case, maybe 
you're off on a slightly different treatment path that could include anti-inflammatory interventions as, as well as or instead of the more conventional antidepressant interventions that we already have. And that's going to give primary care professionals much more confidence and it's going to make them feel more competent that they're actually doing something because at the moment you have that kind of you know, go away, take these pills kind of thing going on mm. a lot of the time. And mm. I think GPs really not feeling like they've got much that they yeah. can do to intervene. Well, for GPs, you see, I mean, it might be, that might get general practice a bit back to where it used to be. You know, where, you know the primary care practitioner was the medical professional who was going to take the whole patient into account, was going to think about mental, was going to think about physical and how they might be related. And I think, you know, with no... You know, disrespect to any individual general practitioner, I think we, the, the system currently doesn't work quite like that so much. I mean, I've certainly had a lot of contact from uh, patient service users, you know, following the publication of my book. A lot of people have said to me, you know, it's amazing what you've been talking about. It's just not that, you know, not that all of these ideas were mine in the first place and not that I've actually got much in the way of solutions to offer people right now, but a lot of people found it very positive that there just is a more constructive conversation you can have about how physical and mental health might be related to each other. And I think if I was a primary care practitioner, I would welcome that. I would think, well, that's that's basically putting the ball back in my court where, you know, arguably it should have been all along. You know, it's my job as a primary care practitioner to see the patient as a whole and work out, you know, okay, they're depressed. Could that be because they're obese? Could it be because they're stressed? Could it be because they have some other physical illness going on in the background and shouldn't we be thinking about a treatment plan that takes all of that into consideration. So we're here in Birmingham today for the launch of the Centre for Human Brain Health and the Institute for Mental Health. So this meeting is all about youth mental health and neuroscience mm. and brain health. Outside of your own field of expertise, mm. what would you say is the most exciting developments currently in mental health research that those that are going to have a real impact on patients over the next 10 years or so? Well, you know, 10 years is quite a short time. I know it's, I mean, in, in most of our lifespans, 10 years is a significant chunk, but in terms of the sort of the timeline of medical progress, 10 years is quite brief. I mean, I think, I think the genetics that we're seeing emerging is very exciting, fundamentally very exciting for mental health. You know, we've known that depression, schizophrenia, etc., are heritable, but we've never previously been so clear as we are becoming clear now about which genes particularly are mediating that heritability. And I think that's going to be important for us. I think we'll also, as we follow that genetic trail, I think we'll also realise um, that, you know, it's not, you know, common mental uh, health disorders, anxiety, depression, psychosis, these aren't like single gene disorders. It's not like Huntington's disease, for example. You know, one gene and you're definitely going to get the disease. These, this is more complex. And I think the interactions between you know, an individual's genetic inheritance and what happens to them environmentally, what kind of shocks they might be exposed to in the course of their upbringing, I think that's going to be very important. I think we're going to understand a little bit more clearly then, you know, how it is that some people who are exposed, for example, to childhood abuse or maltreatment have a significantly increased risk of anxiety, depression and other mental health and physical health problems in later life. You know, what makes them vulnerable? It's presumably some kind of gene-environment interaction going on there. And then there will be other people with a different genetic constitution, for example, who may be more resilient to those kind of environmental shocks. So I think that deeper understanding of how our sort of biological constitution interacts with our environment and our social environment 
I think that's I think that's going to be very exciting in terms of treatment. And I also think it's going to be very, um, you know, powerfully integrative for the field of mental health practice and science. Because you know, I think one of the things that sort of I think handicaps us a little bit as a field is that we are a bit polarized. You know, the, the psychosocial on the one hand and the biomedical on the other. And I think the science is telling us that we are going to be increasingly able to join the dots and, and understand what it is about those social traumas and stresses that you might be exposed to as a child that basically leaves a mark, leaves a memory that puts you at increased risk of mental health disorders you know, decades later. Um, so I think it's all very exciting. Um, it is all going to take quite a long time, but I think you know the science is at an inflection point now. And I, you know, I was just talking to uh, um, a colleague from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I mean, I think it's very exciting what the Royal College of Psychiatrists is now doing to bring neuroscience more to the fore, particularly in terms of training the next generation of psychiatrists. And I think, you know, over the course of generations, we are going to see more neuroscience, more medical science engage with the problems of mental health, not in a not in a way which kind of writes off all the important knowledge that we've gleaned from psychological and social understanding of mental health, but hopefully in a way which basically brings that together with, with the new science of, of genetics, of the brain, and of, and of the immune system. Really looking forward to hearing your talk. Okay. Thanks very much Thank for you. taking time. Oh, it's a great pleasure. <laughs>